On November 30th, the Russian Supreme Court outlawed an organization that doesn't exist, the so-called International LGBT Movement. The ruling came in response to a lawsuit filed by the Justice Ministry, which claimed the international LGBT movement's activities showed signs of extremism and incited social and religious discord. The hearing took place behind closed doors, so we don't know what arguments or evidence the prosecutors presented. Not only was the press not allowed to attend, there wasn't even a defendant in the, in the courtroom, only Justice Ministry officials. Two days before the hearing, a group of activists living abroad made an admirable last-ditch effort to register an organization under the name International LGBT Movement, hoping that if their organization was banned, it would prevent the authorities from using the extremist designation to target whoever they want. Unfortunately, the court totally ignored this maneuver. The new ban won't come into force until January 10th, 2024, but its chilling effect was almost immediate. The day after the ruling, Russian police reportedly raided multiple nightclubs in Moscow that were hosting events for LGBTQ people under the guise of looking for drugs. One attendee told journalists the officers took pictures of people's passports. That same night, one of St. Petersburg's oldest and most popular gay clubs announced it was shutting down. The dating app Pure removed the option for people in Russia to specify their sexual orientation. And an organization called Diela, D-E-L-O, that provided legal assistance to LGBTQ people in Russia announced it's also closing down. This ruling, of course, didn't come out of nowhere. It's been just over a decade since Russia's government passed its so-called gay propaganda law, which banned the distribution of information about LGBTQ people among minors and arguably marked the start of a new era of political homophobia in Russia. Last year, the authorities expanded the ban to apply to people of all ages. In 2020, one of the numerous amendments the Russian authorities made to the country's constitution defined marriage as between a man and a woman, precluding any possibility of legalizing same-sex marriage. And then in July of this year, the government passed a law banning gender-affirming procedures and legal gender changes. I interviewed several activists about the details of this legislation and how it would affect life for transgender people in Russia when it was passed. You can find that episode on the Naked Pravda's podcast feed. To get an idea of what message the Russian authorities are trying to send with this ongoing human rights crackdown, all you have to do is look at Vladimir Putin's own statements. Last November, he signed an executive order that laid out Russia's purported traditional values and the biggest threats they're facing. These threats supposedly include extremist organizations, certain mass media, and the activities of the United States and other unfriendly nations, all of which, he warned, were destroying the traditional Russian family with their propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations. In fact, as my guests on this week's episode told me, while state-sponsored homophobia does have historical precedent in Russia, the traditional values idea that Putin casts as being core to Russian national identity doesn't come from Russia at all. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Hi everybody, I'm Sam Brazil, the senior news editor for Medusa in English, and this is The Naked Pravda. Coming up are my conversations with historian Dan Healy, sociologist Alexander Kondakov, and political scientist Leandra Bias about Russia's new ban on the so-called international LGBT movement. My first guest was Dan Healy, a professor of Russian history at the University of Oxford, and the author of the book Russian Homophobia from Stalin to Sochi. 
I started by asking him what the situation was like for LGBTQ plus people in the first two decades of modern Russia's history, before the state turned decidedly against their rights. We, I think, begin by remembering that when male homosexuality was decriminalized in 1993 in Russia, there was no public discussion of that measure. And it was part of a package of reforms that were about Russia joining the Council of Europe and adopting European standards in its human rights and its criminal law. So no discussion about that. Everybody else in Russia beyond the LGBT community had bigger fish to fry, other things to worry about, as we well know, during that time period. And while there was a growing drumbeat of homophobia in the press, and in, I think in popular sentiment, there was nothing coordinated or organized by the government at that point. And I guess the, the proof of that is, is that in 1997, the Russian parliament adopted a fresh criminal code and it didn't criminalize homosexuality. And in 2002, the Duma actually did debate recriminalization and in fact, the extension of criminalization to lesbian relationships, and it rejected that without even voting on it. I mean, I think it was laughed out. I write about this in my book, Russian Homophobia from Stalin to Sochi. So there's that's the kind of prehistory. But what you get happening out of that 2002 debate is a rising entrepreneurialism among conservative nationalists looking for ways to weaponize the issue. And they don't have to look far because there are plenty of options available from Western political technologies, if you like. So they landed very quickly on the idea of gay propaganda legislation of one kind or another, because that had worked in Britain and it had worked in different states in America. And so the conservative nationalists, ironically, you know, Americanized their approach or anglicized their approach, whatever you like, and went for that and started to push for these laws around different territories of Russia, different provinces of Russia. And I think the first of these is passed in 2006, and then drip, 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 more are passed. And eventually, the, the proposal for a national law actually comes apparently from the provinces with, I think it's Novosibirsk province, petitioning the state Duma for a national law, which is, you know, is passed in 2013. So that's the kind of run-up. And of course, all of that's happening against the backdrop of an increasingly conservative, nationalist, and authoritarian government from the Kremlin and from the center. Yeah. So that's the kind of legislative backdrop. But in terms of you know what was it like for LGBT people, I think actually until 2012, 2013, things were pretty nominally okay. People felt that they could live their lives, that their freedom to express themselves wasn't, wasn't significantly curtailed, and that queer businesses could operate, queer websites could operate, the kinds of, of depictions of queer lifestyles in the, in the media. There were a few restrictions on that, and there was a kind of opening up of society to that. And you see that in the kind of, you know, the Levada organization surveys about diminishing public homophobia during that period from, say, 1991 to about 2006, 2008, sometime in there. Is there any sense in which this new court ruling or the gay propaganda ban or the gender transition ban, any of that is a response to organic demands in 
Russian society, as I think Putin would argue? Well, I don't believe this is a government that worries about organic demand. Do you? Um, I mean, I don't think it's an organic demand for an assault on Ukraine that would kill 200,000 Russian men so far. That just strikes me as, no, I think the Kremlin knows what it's doing. It needs a scapegoat. It has needed a scapegoat to crush the non-systemic opposition since Putin returned to power in 2012. And it landed very quickly on feminists and on the LGBT movement as easy scapegoats. I mean, it's not a good look to persecute Jews anymore, but it's absolutely fine to slam feminists and, and queer people. So, and you know, the political technology is out there. It's not just in Russia, it's in Africa, it's in America, it's in the United Kingdom, it's in plenty of European countries as well. So it's not like it creates a bad look if you go down that road. And of course, you do it by doses, which is an old Stalinist trick. You do, you know, first you, first you ban talking about LGBT in front of children and minors. And even some queer people could accept that that may be something that is not too big an intrusion on our freedom. And maybe straight people have a right to educate their children however they wish. So since you brought up Stalin, can you tell me in a little more detail about the nature of political homophobia under Stalin, the Stalin regime's policies, um, whether his motivations maybe were the same as the Kremlin's right now? What happened was an important swerve away from revolutionary European socialist policy in the, in the 1930s. And that was, and, and what Stalin was doing again was change through dosages. And this one was relatively, when he, when he recriminalized sodomy in 1933-34, it was a move away from uh, the kind of values that the revolution had been about, but that Russians had never really made a strong commitment to. In 1917, the, the socialist revolution brought to Russia and to the wider sort of imperium, right? Whenever I say Russia, you have to think, and its subject peoples. It brought to that new political formation European socialist values, and those included decriminalization of male homosexuality and some speculative stuff around whether there was some room in a socialist environment for queer citizenship for LGBT citizenship and affirmation. And so that was that was part of the baggage that the Bolsheviks brought to and imposed on Russia. And Stalin begins chipping away with this away at this in the 1930s and in 1933 the OGPU, the secret police, report that they have conducted arrests of over 200 gay men in Moscow and in Leningrad and then in other places as well. And they explain that they think that these are anti-Soviet, former bourgeois, former aristocrats who are corrupting young men who have nothing to do with the former middle class or the former bourgeoisie who are in the army or in the navy or whatever, and that they're also potentially spying for Nazi Germany. All of this comes to light in the autumn of 1933, so it's after the rise of Nazi Germany. And it's after Nazi Germany begins persecuting its own LGBT community. So Stalin and 
and his lieutenants begin approve the idea of drafting a law against male homosexuality to to give a sort of retrospective legitimacy to what the the sort of entrepreneurship of the of the secret police and stalin actually personally edits the law to strengthen it he takes out some of the more vivid language about male prostitution and about public homosexual acts, but he also strengthens the penalties to ensure that anyone who gets convicted under this law should be sent to the gulag camps, the worst of the gulag camps, actually, in the far north and the far east of the country. So his signature is really on this law in that, in that particular respect. And then, you know, why do this? The internal correspondence is all about espionage and about fear of the corruption of, of young males in the military. But the, the regime realizes it has a public relations issue to handle around this, although it doesn't realize it initially because I don't think Stalin is, is that on the page about that particular aspect of the socialist project to begin with. So it comes in a moment of geopolitical turn basically, where the Soviet Union is under a new kind of threat with the Nazi regime. And it comes as a result of Stalin's personal homophobia, I would say, and also the homophobia of the top leadership that he's gathered around him, who are, of course, are not the kind of cafe socialists who understood the European socialist movement intimately, but who were trying to build some form of non-capitalism in a very backward and primitive country with much rougher manners <laughs> and possibilities. So is the Kremlin looking back to these policies at all now? Or is it more modern rhetoric, um, more modern approaches that they're taking from you know the West, the evangelical church, and the US, that kind of thing? I don't believe these legislators have any historical sense whatsoever. They're postmoderns. They actually just find a new meme every day and play with it. They don't really have an ideology as such, although conservatism and nationalism suit them, suit them very well. And, you know, if you try to create an ideology out of what Putin and the massive legislators and, and, and experts and so forth around him, out of what they do and what they think, it's pretty scrawny, intellectually minuscule kind of stuff. And I don't think it's it adds up to what you could call an ideology based on a kind of historical understanding of so-called Russian traditions, which of course, traditions are always invented. They're always reconstructed as well. And they're particularly vulnerable to reconstruction, you could say, in times of stress or crisis. And, you know, we're in the middle of one of those. So I think that's where their ideas come from. And you're quite right. I think like I say, like I said earlier, the, the conservative nationalists looked west to find credible ideas and road-tested ideas, frankly. And they, they didn't invent anything new at all. They imported their, homo their political homophobia from the west, but they have really deeply implanted it now in Russian legal culture in jurisprudence and you know supreme court decisions and so forth and and in legislation and it's also now part of the russian mindset i think it's 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 become much more popular 
and reflect some kind of willingness to find a scapegoat in the midst of adversity. And and it satisfies the need to find some kind of victim to blame for the stupidity of the Kremlin, frankly. It comes down to the need for a scapegoat. And again, I come back to the fact that persecuting Jews is a bad look. So a much better idea to persecute a sort of a group that sounds incredibly threatening if you're a straight, a straight parent who lives in a homophobic country where it's actually quite dangerous to be LGBTQ. So you fear for your child. And you see the way that the wind is blowing politically, and you realize that if your child actually got messed up in that kind of movement, that kind of extremism, that things could go very badly for them. And the worst thing probably that could happen is they would be either put in jail, sent to a colony, or they would emigrate and never, you would never see them again. So it's natural, I think, that a lot of people are becoming more and more homophobic as political homophobia ramps up. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people in Nazi Germany went along with anti-Semitism, even though they weren't raving anti-Semites themselves. They let it happen because they recognized that, you know, that the political juggernaut was bigger than them. That's what they thought. So, but why take this odd legal approach of banning a non-existent movement rather than criminalizing same-sex relationships or something like that? It's actually something I, I just said that the Kremlin didn't, or the, the conservative nationalists didn't invent anything new, but this does look rather new. My first response to it is this is a very typical kind of Russian manipulative lawmaking practice, where you make a law that's so badly drafted and so vague and full of implications that it enables law enforcement agencies and civils and society to take matters into their own hands and to get creative and to persecute people and harass people without fearing that they're going to themselves end up in court and to be sued or or otherwise penalized for their violent actions. It's also, I mean, now we're in a different era where persecution of LGBT people is concerned, especially after the 9th of November, 2022, when Putin issued the presidential decree on the protection of traditional values. It's not a long decree, but it's very vivid. And it basically associates LGBTQ people with Russia's enemies, with the United States, which is named in the decree, and also with unfriendly powers. And and basically says that the entire Russian state should examine everything it's doing in order to make sure that LGBTQ people, that people who promote non-traditional relations or who in some way embody them, are not given the kinds of freedoms that an ordinary Russian citizen would get. And that in fact, they're prevented from expressing themselves or living their lives peacefully, etc., etc. That's basically the demand of that decree expressed to the Russian state to get busy and get creative with the persecution of LGBTQ people. When I saw that, I thought there will be pogroms against LGBT people in Russia, and no one who's queer and who lives in Russia should be in any doubt that there will be violence against LGBTQ people before very long, and they should get the hell out. They should leave the country. It's the only rational choice that they have left. My next guest was Alexander Kondakov, a queer studies scholar and an assistant professor of sociology at University College Dublin. 
A lot of his research is focused on violence against LGBTQ plus people in Russia, so I wanted to ask him about the effects the Kremlin's past anti-LGBTQ plus policies have had in Russian society. Well, I mean, um, the situation is definitely complicated, but just like in many other societies, of course, there's a lot of anti-LGBTQ violence in Russia, and there has been. And those who perpetuate this, or perpetrate rather, this, this violence are very, very, very different actors. They're sometimes people from the police, the state, representatives of the state, but they are also, you know, vigilante groups or people on the ground. So there, there are different kinds of, of, of violence against LGBTQ people there. What is kind of distinct about Russia, more or less, is that very much a lot of this, a good proportion of this violence is kind of sponsored and triggered by state policies. And this is what actually my research is about. So violence against LGBT people exists in different societies, even in the most kind of welcoming and accepting for LGBTQ plus people. But in, in Russia in 2013, when the gay propaganda law was enacted, this kind of violence doubled, right? So after the uh, introduction of the gay propaganda law in 2013, I identified uh, twice as many crimes, uh, harsh crimes like killings and beatings and and a lot of homicides, anyway, against LGBTQ uh, people by 2015 already. All right. So, and and we're talking about so dozens and dozens of cases, and sometimes it may not impress because Russia is a, a huge country. But actually, my sources are very conservative. They are cases that I gathered from court rulings across Russia, court rulings about violence against people who happened to be LGBTQ people. So in many countries, this is called hate crime, for example, based on victims' sexual orientation. In Russia, that kind of crime exists, but these crimes were not classified as such. All right. So I rather classified them. They were not classified as such by, by judges. So I regarded them as more or less hate crimes or generally crimes against LGBTQ people, which made it to the very final stage of any crime to a, a, a criminal court ruling. So you can imagine that many, many cases simply did not reach that stage. What do you think the mechanism is by which the Russian government passing a measure like banning so-called gay propaganda, leads to people committing violence. How do you go from you can't spread information about LGBTQ plus people among minors to homophobic attacks? It's not that kind of uh, physical science where you can see links between different events clearly and you can establish very simple connections between one object and another object and, and, and everything kind of works perfectly. It's not what it's like in social science, unfortunately, or fortunately, the world is much more complicated. But more or less the way it works, and it has worked in, in many other countries before Russia, when governments try to introduce discriminatory policies laws, when they enact different kinds of, you know, these powerful, powerful enunciations, and, and they just 
put them out there to, to the public to consume those things, uh, those enunciations, those words of, of hatred and homophobia resonate very differently with different people. And with some people, they resonate in a way that they decide to do harm to the group that is being publicly chastised, being publicly hated by the government officials. So this is this is more or less how it works. And, and to be honest, those, those resonances can be very much different and opposite to, to one another. There can be another kind of response to the public homophobic enunciations pronounced by the government, right? Some people can say, well, this is not right. And I want to solidarize with LGBT populations and communities. I, I don't think that the government is doing a good job in ensuring the happiness of all people. So that's also the possibility. And that what we actually saw. And, and there is some research uh, suggesting that that kind of reaction was also registered in Russia. But there are communities, there are people in any country and Russian society for sure who react with more discrimination, more violence, organizing groups, gay bashing groups, for example, all over country, just like it happened with the so-called Occupy pedophilia, who confused pedophilia and homosexuality, just like actually the gay propaganda law in 2022. There are people on the individual level who start reacting to this prompt by, by the government, right, without organizing in groups or anything. But when they encounter something queer with you know, having on the background this this governmental kind of powerful homophobic discussion, they react in a certain way. So that's how gay propaganda exactly worked. If we compare the gay propaganda law to this ban on the LGBT movement, do you expect the effects to be similar? I think that the added value, let's say, for the homophobic government of this ruling it deals a little bit more with internal law enforcement and governmental jurisdictional kind of areas and, 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 and this kind of stuff. Of course, it will have the effect on the general population as long as it, it is publicly discussed and what will be said there. And of course, the, the very labeling, marking of a whole demographic, let's say, of a, gro of a whole group of people as an extremist organization will have a profound effect on their already marginalized status in the society. But another kind of dimension of this is that now it is official that the police can act against people who they consider part of this extremist organization, right? And we have already seen that the police is, is, is actually trying to do so by raiding gay clubs, by going to, to places where LGBT community is likely gathering and trying to make a lot of trouble there by arresting people and, and, you know, the usual Soviet police thing, making lists of patrons of those clubs. So I think this is the, the kind of a little bit, it's not very new dimension, but it is now directed against individual bodies against people because the gay propaganda law was directed against in law enforcement practices was directed against information and Roskomnadzor the agency that kind of oversees information in Russia was mostly responsible for enforcement of that law now this decision this policy is actually for the police to act upon right it's not only in about information it's also about individual people who may be part of this conspiratorial group 
right? And that's uh, what I think is going to happen. So th- this this new thing is is that it's directed against people more more kind of tautologically directly. And so yeah, the law enforcement and the empowerment with this decision of the law enforcement is I think is is a very important new a little bit newer turn. Where do you think the idea for this approach came from? Do you think the Russian authorities learned from extremist designations they've made against groups in the past, like Jehovah's Witnesses or the AUE movement, which was like this vaguely defined children's criminal subculture? Yeah, yeah, I guess it does explain a little bit this kind of internal institutional logic of this whole idea. Indeed, what you're saying makes total sense here. So I think that what what we've been witnessing for the past dozen of years already is an establishment of anti-queer institution overall in Russia, anti-LGBT institution with fairly sophisticated kind of different jurisdictional areas of, of different agencies within the government. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs would deal with what they call reinterpretation of human rights from the perspective of traditional values and then they would would do that kind of thing with in their domain and they would organize different congresses and conferences and sponsor different congresses for conservative governments and groups to come together and discuss their ideas right they would do that the kind of more internal policies would deal with the gay propaganda law and information more generally trying to figure out how to frame the message for for the local publics on sexuality and gender, trying to convince them that you know, everything what is different come, is coming from the West and so on and so forth. And that institution has been built up until now with quite a few policies. So the gay propaganda law, the international affairs thing, then also national security policy that mentions a lot of stuff about traditional and non-traditional values and how these non-traditional values is actually an instrument of war by the west brought on the russian soil trying to trying to destroy it so that that was another kind of trend of this and anti-adoption legislation for gay couples and and countries where same-sex marriage is illegal then anti-trans legislation in 2023 this summer right this then then the extremist legislation and kind of so it means that there's there is now already a kind of a, there are people within the government in different agencies working on this issue from their perspective and i guess they are kind of struggling for their portion of of this thing to own right <laughs> they 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 want to own something for their agency for their for their thing and i, and I guess part of this was the reasons behind extremism thing to to sort of try and grasp for the law enforcement agencies, a clear-cut portion of anti-gay institution, anti-gay agenda in their hands. And this is what they do. They they have this, this tool, they have the extremism law that they implement against any kind of dissent. Maybe in the beginning of, of, of the history of that legislation, relatively making sense, maybe, maybe even, with the crackdown on neo-Nazis and, and, and nationalists, but now more and more trying to simply silence any sort of opposition and and the LGBT what they call movement uh, but the communities overall are definitely have been constructed now as 
an oppositional force to the Russian government trying to penetrate its soil and, and destroy traditional family values. What do you think this ruling means for the future of LGBTQ plus organizations in Russia, like groups that provide legal assistance to LGBTQ plus people? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's super scary exactly for the LGBT organizations in Russia. This is uh, definitely the, the, the target of, of, of the law and the obvious kind of uh, extremist expression of this extremism, right? So I'm afraid that it's more or less the end of the LGBT activism in Russia, at least in any recognizable form. So I hope that the activists will figure out how to do this super important work in in other ways in more yeah elusive more more creative ways as they did and and they they we actually have the history of 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 less expressive lgbt activism in the soviet union for example uh things existed and there will also will be heroes who will probably suffer for little things that they they will do for a badge a rainbow badge on their back but but more kind of organized lgbt activism i don't think that it's going to be possible as soon as this decision is in effect in in january i believe so i think it's kind of the end of it and we've seen this from from the example of navalny's group right they they were pronounced extremist and even their lawyers now in danger you know even their lawyers are prosecuted so any affiliation to an extremist what what the police deems extremist group is basically criminalized so i don't see how this kind of formal activism lgbt activism is possible i'm sure yeah i'm sure there will be other forms online elusive secret the double life the double world the underground everything that the soviet union was so famous for in terms of activism I want to add here that a number of LGBTQ plus rights organizations have already announced that they plan to continue operating. The organization Vuichad, which means a way out, for example, said that because it moved all of its employees abroad in 2022, it won't have to make any radical changes, but it will have to discontinue some of its services like virtual support groups. My final guest is Leandra Bias, a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Political Science at the University of Bern in Switzerland. Dr. Bias studies the intersection of political science and gender studies, focusing on anti-gender politics and authoritarianism and foreign policy. I started by asking her about the origins of modern Russia's anti-LGBTQ plus politics in a more global context. Okay, yeah. And I always say the caveat of like, I haven't studied globally, right? So I also want to give credits to other people who have done or are doing that. And so the one piece of research that I think um, yeah should be kind of mandatory is Christina Stöckel's book on Russia and the Global Culture Wars, because there they really, it's a co-author book, and they really trace how, and that is fascinating, how the issue and the very notion of traditional values in Russia was not something that came from within. And I think that's very important for all of us to realize that that was actually a movement that started within evangelical um, circles in the U.S. way before, so around the 70s. Basically, Dr. Bias said, in the late 20th century, American evangelical Christian circles started reviving the work of this guy named Peter M. Sorokin, a Harvard sociology professor who immigrated to the U.S. from Russia and who was active from the 1920s until the 1950s. 
The sociologist Christina Stoichel writes that Sorokin's works on rural society, family, and civilizational decline greatly influenced American conservative intellectuals. But that was in the U.S. And so then one thing that we tend to forget is that the 90s, as much as it was a process of transformation in a progressive liberal way, it of course also opened doors for cooperation between churches. And so it was U.S. evangelicals reaching out to Russian Orthodox Church and, and other also, we would call them social movements, to well, start spreading that idea, start exchanging. So this is where, if we speak of origin in, in the Russian case, this is where we would locate it. And I think that's kind of crucial because it also shows the irony of when then Putin speaks of, let's call it um, indigenous or, or unique Russian traditional values, when essentially they have very much come from outside, or at least as a strategy that has come from outside. And Russia is in that case quite striking because it illustrates how something that wasn't there, issues like, frankly, the case of the right to abortion was a non-issue and has now become one, even though it was established for so many decades, is, um, well, it's striking to say the least. And so to, to go also beyond Russia, because of course, the, um, this is not just something that happened between U.S. Christian evangelicals and, and Russians, but something that is really transnationally organized and converges in the so-called World Congress of Families, where Russian oligarchs have been heavily involved with financial means also. I'm interrupting here to add some extra details that Dr. Bias sent me after our interview. The World Congress of Families was founded in 1995 as a transnational NGO by an American historian and a Russian sociologist. Its website writes, At World Congress of Families conferences and events, delegates learn how and why it's important to protect the natural family as the fundamental and sustainable unit of society and defend the sanctity and dignity of all human life from conception to natural death. In an article for the London School of Economics' blog, Engenderings, Dr. Bias wrote the following, which draws on reporting from Open Democracy. Since 2008 alone, more than $700 million has been invested in Europe, in part to provide financial support to doctors who refuse abortions on grounds of conscience during trials. $180 million can be traced back to Russia, and it is, as a report from the EU Parliament stated, very likely only the tip of the iceberg. This makes Russia the second most important donor of the so-called anti-gender campaigns after the U.S. Russia embarked on this track relatively suddenly in 2013 and soon overtook the U.S. Christian fundamentalists in terms of money. All right, now back to the interview. So I want to zoom in on Russia itself and its foreign policy a bit. What role has this anti-LGBTQ+, anti-feminism, traditional values narrative played in Russia's explanation for its war against Ukraine? When did it start, right? And one one thing is certainly this, like the historical one of the 90s, but this is where it was still very much religious circles. And I think what's important to, to then realize is that this switches and becomes official policy around 2012, 2013. When we, and I don't know how much you want to contextualize this to your readers, but we know, right, by then you have put in third time, very fragile, uh, voila. So alliance with the Russian Orthodox Church, for one, where you start to see that essentially traditional values enter really official policy. And I mean official foreign policy, both um, diplomacy and security politics, which is fascinating in the sense of you start having the 2000, 
13 foreign policy concept says Russia's approach to human rights is something that we should be promoting. Now, if you read this and don't know the background stories, you wouldn't really understand what is meant by that. But by that time, what Russia started doing, as in UN um, official diplomacy, was no longer saying just human rights are something Western that is used as a neocolonialism, but reframing it, reappropriating it and saying, we know the true definition of human rights. but it, And that meant a very restrictive, illiberal interpretation. So essentially, human rights is something for the majority population at the majority culture of a country. And what you are doing in the West is you extend this more and more to other minorities so that you end up with, he, Putin called this later on, a reverse discrimination. So essentially, by applying human rights to everyone, you are oppressing parts of, of society. So it starts with this benign sentence in, the, in 2013 of that's an approach to human rights that Russia should be promoting worldwide. And you see this is already a strategy to, of course, garner support from countries in the global south, which has worked out. And then in the same year, you see the Russian Security Council really saying, we need to start strengthening our defense in the moral sphere, which is also quite incredible because there you see that you that they start making gender equality into a, a threat that is equal to a military threat if it's part of security policy, right? And so indeed, in the following national national security strategy, you have an explicit commitment that it is part of Russian strategy to revive moral and spiritual values. And we're talking 2016. So in, in political science, we would say this is when you start making traditional values, um, you, you start securitizing it. You're making it, it into a threat from which you, of course, then can legitimize a lot of things. And of course, what we know, if we're talking now 2016, in the meantime, we had Crimea and we had the Maidan before that, right? And Eastern Ukraine. And it is indeed the case that that argument of U Ukraine being depict depicted as a simple play ball of Western perverse powers, right? That started already with the Maidan. So during the Maidan, it was covered not as a legitimate popular uprising, but among other things, it was discredited by calling it an issue of homo dictatorship taking over in Ukraine and that that was instigated by external read Western forces. And very much starting to frame it as that is a threat because that means this perverse gender ideology from the West has now reached our borders. And so you start seeing that this is becoming represented as, as a threat that therefore also requires certain they would say, um, defensive mechanisms, right? And so it is little surprise that around the annexation of Crimea, you then have Lavrov just a few days before the annexation saying that Russian society had to be protected from Europe's permissiveness and cultural relativism and hedonism and the refusal to respect traditional values. So that is 10 days before the annexation. So in the run-up to the full-scale invasion, if, if we can already come to that point, 
you of course have the the infamous one should say historical essay where Ukraine is first framed as the anti-Russia and there you have no mention of traditional values yet but there we are in July 21 2021 I mean and then in October you have the Valdai forum the most important forum right in Russian foreign policy where Putin dedicated several pages in his speech to traditional values and really making it quite explicit that he sees this so I, he didn't say gender ideology, but what, what is described as Western gender ideology equal to extremism, equal to Bolshevism, and that it is essentially a, a social experiment that goes as far as eradicating all foundations of humankind. So that is how high he had risen the stakes and that therefore it was something that he would not allow others again read westerners to impose on russia if necessary by i think he said blunt rejection right and so if you then combine these two texts you combine the idea of ukraine as anti as anti russia and the traditional values being threatened to the point of essentially saying annihilation well a few months later in february you have that key speech that try to justify the unjustifiable, where he did say that they are inter alia launching this special military operation, also because this is a Western attempt to destroy Russian traditional values. As Russia continues to take more and more rights from LGBTQ plus people and scapegoat them more and more, is the international condemnation, the perception in Russia, at least among some people, that it's totally out of control? Do the benefits for Putin outweigh the costs? I always find it difficult to to speak of in terms of calculation, but I think it is it is a combination between on the one hand you have some who genuinely adhere to the idea of protecting traditional values, and then you also combine this with such a repressive apparatus that essentially it doesn't matter if others disagree, right? And when we speak in terms of foreign policy and the international condemnation, I think that we can see that it is strategically used precisely because it has worked in the past. In the sense of that that notion of traditional values, I said before, it works because you can say that not just gender equality, but essentially all human rights and the very idea of democracy is a form of cynical Western neo-imperialism. And so you justify your own regime, but you also provide an argument for all other illiberal forces or already autocracies in the world, or also for what we would call superficial decolonial approaches, right? And some of this has resonated in the global south, where it is, we do not want the West to tell us how we should be living. So we underestimate how well that has worked. And when we speak of international condemnation, then we should already look like since the start of the full-scale invasion, this has not been a fully international in the full sense condemnation of, of, of Russia and not consistently. So it seems to be working. There is also research that does show that it is thanks to this idea of traditional values that Russia has managed to create broad alliances in the UN system in various areas. Now, I'm not just talking Security Council, really in various areas with actors with whom it would otherwise have been difficult. And that is that is actually the, the strategic force of, of these traditional values, because anyone can just project whatever they wanted to it, because he never, Putin never did, like offers a clear definition of them. So 
I think internationally that seems to still work. And domestically, I also think that it is it is less of a, I need to buy into a certain vote share that I have, right? Because that is not how this political system functions. It is for me right now much more um, a vicious circle that takes place where you, you have the combination of foreign policy that needs traditional values to legitimize both the use of force and the political system. And therefore, domestically, as the war drags on, so to speak, you are forced to further increase that rhetoric. You're sort of almost compelled to keep doing that to remain credible. And so there, there is where I would place that, that recent ban on, on the LGBT movement as, as extremists, right? As a further, a further in escalation, let's speak, of that hyper-patriarchal mechanism that was triggered. In a survey of more than 6,000 LGBTQ plus Russians conducted by the organization Zvichad in Svira earlier this year, 83% of respondents said they had noticed an increase in homophobic and or transphobic sentiments in Russian society against the backdrop of the full-scale war in Ukraine. Many of them mentioned the rise in hateful rhetoric among government officials and in the pro-government media. Another 39 said they'd seen an increase in homophobic or transphobic sentiments in their close social circles. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.